0: Welcome to Orphan Sunday, everyone. Um, I'm Wendy. This is Brian. I'm sure many of you know who we are. Um, We just really feel passionate about orphans, and that's why we're here up here. Uh, Last week, I was at work going up the stairs. I work at the hospital, and I passed one of my favorite doctors, Dr. Tate. And as usual, he asked me, any progress? And my heart kind of sunk a little bit. Uh, because I so desperately want to give him some positive news, and I said, not yet. Um, Other common questions that come from him and many of our friends and family are, have you heard anything yet, or any news, any updates? And many of you have been very, very gracious in asking us those questions, and we're very thankful for that. Brian and I have been working on adopting internationally for the last three and a half years. I love to share with people why we're doing it and what we love so much about it, Um, why we have chosen to not go the biological route again, and why we've chosen to adopt. Um, I'm excited for that day when we have a picture finally, and we get to say yes. Here, Dr. Tate, and here, all my friends and family, this is is why, and this is why we're doing this.
1: So uh, some of you might know that adoption is pretty important within the Bible. It's not just Uh, mentioned once or twice we've got when you think about adoption you might think of james chapter 1 that calls us to love the orphan and the widow that are in their misfortune but actually there's plenty of examples within the bible as well in the very first book of the bible we've got moses who was put in the river because pharaoh was killing off all the babies and he gets adopted and then later in the old testament you've got esther who both of her parents die, and then her cousin Mordecai adopts her, and then she becomes queen of the Jews. And then, believe it or not, our Savior, Jesus, was adopted by Joseph. So, uh, then flipping forward a little bit in Romans chapter 8, we're all adopted into that's how it, God brings us into his family. Um, let's see. Start. Oh, yeah. I think
0: it's my tricep. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, This is the point where I really wanted to pour on the statistics for you and just tell you how many millions of orphans there are in the world. Um, The UNICEF and the WHO, which is the World Health Organization, are the ones who give us a lot of these statistics, but they're really limited uh, because when they when they say this is how many orphans there are in the world, they don't include orphans living on streets, which are millions. They don't include orphans living in institutions or refugees, victims of trafficking, or labor. So they don't include those numbers. So when they say there's so many millions of orphans in the world, they actually have no idea because there's millions of orphans that are unaccounted for. Um, And these orphans aren't necessarily kids that have deceased parents. They may have one or two parents alive, but they rarely see them or experience life with these parents. And I'm not just talking internationally, I'm talking about the U.S. too. By the end of the fiscal year in 2016, DHS reported 437,000 kids in the foster system.
1: So now, it's kind of a fun part, we want to get some crowd involvement. Um, We know that a lot of families here in the church are involved in fostering or adopting. And so, right now, if anyone in this church or in our family here has adopted adopted or is in the process of adoption or has fostered or is in the process of fostering, would you please stand up?
0: And we know who you are if you don't stand. (laughs) We will call and say your
1: name. So three and a half years ago when Wendy and I started the process, it's kind of a crazy process. You have to gather documents. You have to prove... Stay standing for just a second. Uh, You have to prove all this crazy stuff about yourself. And we started to share our story with other people and we were shocked that how many other people were going through the same process uh, as us. So we want all of you that are sitting down to look around at all these families because one of the things that is so desperately needed is to make sure that they're not alone in this process, that we as mission have got their backs. Okay, now you can sit down.
0: So... What can we do, and how do we respond as families in Salem, Oregon, and in this church? So, number one, foster a child, which we have a lot of amazing families who are already doing that. Um, You can love them in a time of their life that's really rough and messy, and show a little Christ to them.
1: Another option is to start the process of adopting. It's a kind of scary process, especially for us when they tell you all the things you need, the cost— and all those um, other things that seem like they're prohibiting to adopting, but really when you open yourself up and let other people know that you're adopting, it's really amazing to see the support that you'll get.
0: Mentor or volunteer. Find a way to mentor an orphan or even a struggling parent. Find a teen mom that needs help. Serve the community. Make treats for DHS. Love on the staff who have a really hard job. Uh, one thing I think Brian and I hadn't considered until recently was how we should be working on preserving the families that are broken and not just focusing on adoption and foster, but how can we help these families stay together? Because that's the ultimate, that's the ultimate good is to keep them with their families if we can.
1: And, of course, prayer is extremely important for especially these families going through it um, There's some really difficult times for adoptive and foster families, and prayer is one of the best ways that we can be at home but still supporting those people.
0: Uh, Church culture. So creating a church culture here that's safe for families, parents, uh, foster kids, where they feel like it's a place they can come and be, even if they're different or struggling in any way. Uh, I have a quote for you from the Christian Alliance, not this one, not yet, from the Christian Alliance of Orphans website. Uh, Beyond formal ministry, what can make all the difference for foster parents, adoptive parents, and mentors are the intangibles that make for a culture of welcome and hospitality. Sunday school teachers who grasp the unique challenges that come with wounded children, pastors who honor adoption and pray for foster youth from the pulpit. No, it's not on here. It's a different one and people willing to invite families with special needs to their houses.
1: All right, and number six is support. So there's a lot of ways to support the families that you saw standing. Uh, Three and a half years ago, when Wendy and I started the process, we did a luau and a garage sale, which raised a bunch of money. And for adopting, one of the hugest prohibiting factors for a lot of families is the price tag. It's insane when you think about it. Um, Ours will come to something like 20 Five grand, And when you first see that, you get sticker shock of like, yeah, I could go buy a new Audi for that amount of money. But uh, the amazing thing is when you put that out there, um, your church family will respond in giving and supporting you. Uh, another way that we have also supported those families that are fostering within our community is respite care. So a lot of families also in mission have gone through the classes at DHS to become respite care to be able to help and support those foster families as well.
0: Uh, we're going to end with another quote from the Christian Alliance for Orphans. And you guys can read along if you want. Not out loud, it's okay. We should understand that the biblical concept of the orphan and fatherless includes more than just the boy or girl who has lost one or both parents. Rather, it describes the child who faces the world without provision, protection, and nurture that parents uniquely provide. No statistical analysis will ever perfectly capture the global number of children fitting this description. Regardless, God calls his people to reflect his heart and character in choosing to defend the cause of the fatherless, to visit the orphan and widow in their distress, and to set the lonely in families, whatever the details of his or her situation may be. Ultimately, our final hope is this. That Christians in every nation will rise as the primary answer to the needs of the orphans in their midst, glorifying God as a reflection of his great love for the orphan and for us. And I know that's our hope and goal for our church to be able to do that, too.
1: All right, let's pray. Dear Lord, thanks so much for Orphan Sunday. Let us never forget about those you've called us to love. Lord, it's humbling and scary to say that we want to be your representatives to a world that is lost and so blind that so many kids grow up without the proper care, love, and attachment. Without you, we fall flat on our faces, but with you, we can truly change the world around us. We love the fact that you are a father to the fatherless, and someday we will be uh, reunited with you in perfect union. Thanks, Lord. Amen.
2: Amen. Let's give him a hand. Thank you, guys. guys will open your Bibles up to Deuteronomy 2. My wife and I, when we found out we were pregnant with the twins, uh, the twins were our eighth pregnancy, uh, and so after seven miscarriages we had decided that um, we were going to become parents a different way, and so um, we opened up an adoption in Ethiopia, had gone through, we were, I don't even remember, Kel, what were we on the list? Third? third on the list, and then we found out we were pregnant with the boys, and they were very, very gracious, the agency was, to allow us to continue the process knowing that we had so many miscarriages. And uh, Kelly and I still mourn that, and what's shocking to us um, is that we mourn it almost as much, if not more, the loss of that adoption as we do uh, any of our miscarriages. And so our hope is to uh, adopt eventually. Um, Right now, we've got this baby called Mission Fellowship, and so we're trying to get that kind of on its feet before we get back into that. But uh, man, adoption is such an amazing, amazing thing, and it is all throughout the Word. God is good, amen? He is our Abba Father, the one we can call our own loving, adopted Father. On a Sunday like today, we're reminded of the goodness of God as we talk about orphans, as we talk about the fatherless, and I'm thankful for the Felixes for um, bringing that to us and uh, encouraging us and exhorting us. As a church leadership, we desire for our entire church body to be a group that stands up for the fatherless, whether here in Salem or across the world. In orphan care, in foster care, in bringing children into our homes as their forever families, all of these are amazing ways that we can show the Lord, and love one another. And the reason that we do this is because, as Brian said, it's the call of all those who are God's people. Across the Bible, this is the command. It illustrates who Christ is by loving and adopting these kids and caring for them. And one of my favorite scriptures that captures this so well is right out of Deuteronomy. It's Deuteronomy 10, 17 through 18. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe, He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. In our current day language, sojourner is refugee. And so this is who God is. This is who we are to be. And it's obvious when you read the full canon of Scripture that God's heart is for those who are oppressed. Is it not? Right? God's heart is for the orphan and the fatherless. He is the exodus God. He is the one that hears the cry of the vulnerable. He is the one that cares for them. And to be the people of God that we are called to be, we have to do two things. We have to speak the prophetic truth of the gospel and tell people the truth of Jesus Christ because without the gospel, we are all lost. But also, we have to illustrate the gospel. We have to show who Jesus Christ is by the way that we love, by the way that we care, by the way that we um, reach out to the fatherless, to the orphan, to the widows, the way that we lay down our lives. Now, as I was planning to teach today and as we were planning to talk about what the Felixes would, would present, I contemplated teaching from this text because that would be a little bit easier <laughs> than what I'm about to do. This text goes along great with Orphan Sunday. If you read ahead, Deuteronomy 2 does not. <laughs> How many of you read Deuteronomy 2 ahead of time? Let's see. Okay, a handful of you. All right, good. And not only do they not connect To the plight of the fatherless? Deuteronomy 2 and 3, if you read through them beforehand, you might even be asking right now wait a minute, is this God of Deuteronomy 10 the same God of Deuteronomy 2 and 3? Is this one and the same mighty God? We received a question into our anonymous text line this week that puts it well. I'm going to read this out out loud here. As I read Deuteronomy 3, one of you said, I wonder how conquering and destroying people that God created brings glory to his name. Were these people they conquered actually not men created by God? Was it a race created by evil angels? In other words, why was it okay that God killed these people? Our minds quickly turned to various options to make sense of this conquering of Canaan, to make sense of this seeming incongruence and contradiction that a loving God, the God of Deuteronomy 10, the God of the New Testament, has to have something else going on to be the same God as the God in Deuteronomy 2 and 3. And so I really appreciate the honesty of whoever this was, whoever you are. Um, this is a great question, and I thank you for it. Because if I, as I've gone to college campuses, as I've talked to people, especially millennials on down, this is a giant question. How do you square this up, Hans? Jesus giving his life on the cross, the Old Testament God going in and taking life. How do you square it up? And so for us to be good apologists, for us to be good ambassadors going out into the world that is asking this a lot lately, We have to be able to square these things up. And so I'm going to answer the first part of this question. Next week, we'll talk a little bit more about that part of the question, was it a race created by evil angels? We won't hit that today. But this morning, I have two goals I want to accomplish with Deuteronomy 2. First, I want to clear up this understanding of who God is and any discrepancy in your mind of his character. And second, I want to break down the faulty incongruence that exists in our mind and heart when it comes to trusting God. Over the years, it's been my perception as a pastor that the seeming incongruence of what we're talking about today, the God of Deuteronomy 10 versus the God of Deuteronomy 2 and 3, that that incongruence has been part of whether or not people will trust God. It's based on these kinds of texts that people will sit in front of me and say, Hans, I think I'm getting the Deuteronomy 2 God in my life right now. I think he kind of wants to crush me versus, I'm going to get the Deuteronomy 10 God, because he views me as his child who needs a good father God. Why don't I press into the Lord, some of you might ask. Why don't I read the Bible anymore? Why don't I engage with God's people more or practice spiritual disciplines? Well, for many of you, you may not have even realized this, but it comes down to the fact of this truth. You don't trust God. If you did, you'd press into him more. And when I present that to people, it's amazing how there's an epiphany that usually happens and people say, you're, you know what, you're right, I, I don't really know if I trust God. Well, guys, this is true because anyone who's grown up in a, in a dysfunctional home with an abusive parent figure, one of the reasons that you don't trust your parent is because you never know what's coming, the good or the bad. And if we don't know who God is and we're not founded on the fact of his goodness, then we can unknowingly let that same chaotic thought come into our minds about Father God. That I don't know if he's going to be the Deuteronomy 10 God today when I sin, or is he going to be the Deuteronomy 2 God that wipes me out. The reality is is that God is good no matter what, and I'm going to show you that hopefully today. I think that if we dig into this conundrum this morning, many of us will be on the path towards trusting God fully. And if we can do that, we will trust what he calls us to and what he commands us to. To be the people that reflect him to the world. So let's go ahead and jump into our text today. And for those of you who haven't read it, you'll see why I'm talking about this incongruence. Start there in Deuteronomy 2, verse 1. Then we turned and journeyed into the wilderness in the direction of the Red Sea, as the Lord told me. And for many days we traveled around Mount Seir. Then the Lord said to me, You have been traveling around this mountain country long enough. Turn northward and command the people. You are about to pass through the territory of your brothers, the people of Esau, who live in Seir. And they will be afraid of you, so be very careful. Do not contend with them, for I will not give you any of their land. No, not so much as for the sole of the foot to tread on, because I have given Mount Seir to Esau as a possession. You shall purchase food from them with money that you may eat, and you shall also buy water from them with money that you may drink. For the Lord your God "'has blessed you in all the works of your hands. "'He knows you're going through this great wilderness. "'These 40 years, the Lord your God has been with you. "'You have lacked nothing. "'So we went on away from our brothers, "'the people of Esau who live in Seir, "'away from the Arabah road, from Elath and Ezion Gibir. "'And we turned and went into the direction "'of the wilderness of Moab. "'And the Lord said to me, "'Do not harass Moab or contend with them in battle, "'for I will not give you any of their land for a possession, "'because I have given Ar to the people of Lot for a possession.' The Emim formerly lived there, a people great and many and tall as the Anakim. Like the Anakim, they are also counted as Rephaim, but the Moabites called them Emim. The Horites also lived in Seir formerly, but the people of Esau dispossessed them and destroyed them before them and settled in their place, as Israel did to the land of their possession, which the Lord God gave them. Now rise up and go over the brook zared So he we went over the brook zared And the time from our leaving Kadesh Barnea until we crossed the brook Zered was 38 years, until the entire generation, that is the men of war, had perished from the camp as the Lord had sworn to them. For indeed, the hand of the Lord was against them to destroy them from the camp until they had perished. So as soon as all the men of war had perished and were dead from among the people, the Lord said to me, today you are to cross the border of Moab at Ar. And when you approach the territory of the people of Ammon, do not harass them or contend with them, for I will not give you any of the land of the people of Ammon as a possession, because I have given it to the sons of Lot for possession. It is also counted as a land of Rephaim. Rephaim formerly lived there, but the Ammonites called them Zamzumim. That's a fun word to say. As a people, a people great and many and tall as the Anakim. But the Lord destroyed them before the Ammonites, and they dispossessed them and settled in their place. As he did for the people of Esau, who lived in Seir, when he destroyed the Horites before them, and they dispossessed them and settled in their place even to this day. As for the Avim, who lived in villages as far as Gaza, the Kafturim, who came from Kafdor, destroyed them and settled in their place. Rise up, set out on your journey, and go over the valley of the Arnon. Behold, I have given into your hand Sihon the Amorite king of Heshbon and his land. Begin to take possession and contend with him in battle. This day I will begin to put the dread and fear of you on the people who are under the whole heaven who shall hear the report of you and shall tremble and be in anguish because of you. All right, so confession time. How many of you have read through chapter 2 before and you got Zamzamim and Rephaim and something else I can't even pronounce? How many of you have read this and gone, this has nothing to apply to me? Anybody? Yeah, okay. See, the reality is, is we can do that. We read over it and we go, okay, this has nothing to do with me. Let me hurry up and get to the grace of the New Testament. But see, what is deep inside this is something so, so powerful. And the first thing that I want to show you today, we're not going to answer any questions about the Rephaim or the Zamzamim today. We'll talk about that a little bit next week. But today, the first thing I want to show you is this. Write this down. There is only one true God, and he is the God of all people. Now, you might think, Hans, duh, okay, that doesn't need to even be a point. But I want you to write this down because I think... We need to be purposeful and remember this. There is only one true God, and he is God of all people, even those who don't believe in him. Even those who don't believe in him. You see, depending on who wins the election, whether it's a Republican or a Democrat, the other side always says, not my president, right? It just cracks me up. They're still your president. You can say that as much as you want. If you're a citizen of this country, they're still your president. You need to pray for them, right? doesn't matter if they're an elephant or a donkey, Okay. Or something else that I can't say from the stage. Okay? You need to pray for them. They're still your president. You cannot believe in the God of heaven, and yet he is still God. It's so necessary to remember. Let's remind ourselves of this context. Remember that Deuteronomy is structured like an ancient Near East peace treaty. It's between the conquering king and the people he's conquered. And we find ourselves in the second section of that treaty that captures the historical background. And so Moses is standing here on the side of the Jordan River, the east side, about to go into the land. And he's reminding everybody, hey, guys, remember that the Lord brought us through and helped us conquer. But he takes time, if you noticed, he takes time to spell out that three times, don't choose these people's land. Don't contend with them. Don't fight with them. You're going to go fight with these people. You see, if you look at a map of Israel, it's very interesting. Okay, there's Canaan the green. Alright? and there are three groups of people that Moses tells, uh, or that God tells Moses, you can't touch them. Okay, here are the, the groups. The first one is here. Okay, you guys see that? Edom. Second one is Moab. The third one is Ammon. And what they're doing is they're going from here all the way through these lands, and they need passage through these two, Edom and Moab. And they're not supposed to touch Ammon, but they're going to go up through and they're going to fight against Sihon and Og, the Amorites, okay? That's where they're going. And so God says, don't touch Edom, don't touch Moab, don't touch Ammon. Now, this is really, really important stuff. Why is that the case? Well, it's the case because these are people that God is trying to be faithful to. He's trying to show his faithfulness even to people that are his complete enemies, While God chose Israel to be his covenant people to represent him, we're reminded that God doesn't just care about one people. This section reminds us of that fact because, guys, if it were just, I only care about Israel, he'd say, go wipe everybody out. But that's not the God we serve. Ultimately, the Lord is God of the whole earth, and he cares about all people. And while there is collateral damage in the midst of spiritual warfare, and here, physical warfare, God's ultimate goal is to get all the world to turn to him and follow him. We see this throughout Scripture, Psalm 89, 11. We had Psalm 24 earlier that spoke of the fact that the earth is the Lord's. Here's Psalm 89, 11. The heavens are yours, the earth also is yours. The world and all that is in it, you have founded them. We also see in Exodus 19.5. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. I think we can easily find ourselves falling into a place in evangelicalism where we might not say it outright, but by our actions, we show that we believe God only cares about the Americans and the Israelis. You ever notice that? We tend to fall into this habit But this is just not the case. Whether or not a people acknowledge Yahweh, he's still the God that reigns over them and the God that loves them and wants to draw them to himself. If we can remember this, it serves to show the magnitude of our sin and the magnitude of his grace. His grace is so massive that while an entire nation, an entire people group is his enemy, he still wants to reach them. While people are still his enemies, he still loves them. And likewise, it shows how grotesque our sin is that we would turn our back on that kind of grace. The Moabites, the Edomites, the Ammonites, they turned their back on God's grace, and yet he was still loving enough to say, hey, guys, don't go in and wipe them out. Why? Well, because God's chosen people were to be his ambassadors among the nations. And his goal was to reach those groups and draw them to him. Our evangelical mandate is the same, to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, We are commanded to make disciples of all nations, not those that get along with us, not those that like us, all nations. And when we're taking the gospel to our neighbors, our coworkers, and into unreached people groups in Burkina Faso, we are declaring that Jesus Christ is Lord of the entire world and that he is going to return to draw all nations to himself. And so we look forward to the day when all nations will finally see Yahweh as their God. How we view all of our theology really encompasses this and and, and changes this. For example, what do you view heaven to be? Do you view heaven as the place you get to go retire for eternity? Or do you view heaven as the Bible rightly says, that all nations will be drawn to the Lord and that the world will be regenerated? Look at from Revelation. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb. The city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and it is the lamp. its the lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Through the middle of the streets of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month, the leaves of the tree were for the healings of the nations." Again, I don't think many of us are purposeful in it, but we can have this kind of evangelical American arrogance where God loves Americans and Israelis and the rest of the world, well, they're his enemies. But remember that we were once his enemies. And the entire point of the evangelical mandate is to reach those enemies with the gospel If we recognize all of this, if we recognize that God was the God of the entire earth at the beginning, Jesus came to save the entire world, and at the end, the entire world will be the Lord's, and those who declare their allegiance for him will be his children, then we know that our job is to do the same thing, is to be ambassadors to the world, to reach these nations with the gospel. I got a chance to talk to Marcel on the phone the other day. By the way, he said he's willing to pay for our roof in our new building. I thought that was pretty funny. He literally said, uh, do you need a roof? I said, Marcel, different deal over here. We need walls, my friend. We need walls. He, he laughed for about a good uh, five minutes in the middle of his Burkina Faso Chinese food shop, which I'm scared to try when I'm there next time. But uh, one of the things that he was talking about is that three new pastors from unreached people groups came and asked him for roofs again this week there's tons of work with unreached people groups going on there. Are we going to answer the call and help him reach those groups? God is the God of the whole world. Now, secondly, this command to not go and and trounce these three groups of people, but to actually hold back, the Moabites, the Edomites, the Ammonites, it serves to show, secondly, you can write this down, uh, that God will always default to faithfulness and grace if it doesn't uh, contradict his justice. He will always default to mercy over judgment. How do we know this? Well, each of these three groups, the Edomites, the Moabites, the Ammonites, were not the covenant people of God, true. But because of their relationship to God's covenant people, Israel, God is even faithful to protect them and bring them justice. Notice in this section that we just covered in Deuteronomy that even the commands, um, that even, uh, he even commands the Israelites to be fair to the people as they pass through. Don't just go in and take everything, right? Right? go in and pay them for the food and the water you bring or that you take. He's trying to get them to be just. He's trying to get them to, to, to be a good representative, good stewards. Now, why these three groups? Why are they singled out? Well, the Edomites come from Esau, the brother of Jacob. Esau was the son of Isaac. He was the grandson of Abraham. So when God says, I will be good to your offspring, God is going out of his way to be kind to the offspring of Abraham, even though they've got their back turned to him. That's how faithful and good our God is. And that one makes sense. But what about the Moabites and the Ammonites? You guys remember where the Moabites and the Ammonites come from? You can go read it on your own. It's Genesis 19, 30 through 38. I'm already covering enough hard passages today. This is the story of how after Sodom was destroyed, the daughters of Lot got him drunk on two successive nights and got impregnated by him in order to continue their offspring. Yuck. Can I get a yuck? yuck? You guys said yuck a lot louder than you say amen. What's wrong? Okay. But that's where they came from. So why was God faithful to them? Well, look back at Genesis 12 with me. This is Genesis 12, 1 through four. Okay, it's up on the board. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Do You guys remember who went with him? So Abram went as the Lord had told him and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. He not only left his family, his kindred, he left all of his idolatry to go pursue the one true God, to be obedient to Yahweh. And the only other person that went with him, besides his wife, was Lot. Are you a person that's stuck in sin and you remember the day where you were so zealous for Jesus, but right now you feel like Lot in the middle of Sodom? God's not done with you. Just like God wasn't done with Lot or his daughters or his grandchildren. God is a faithful God, He's a gracious God. And sometimes we sell him short in how faithful he's going to be, how gracious he's going to be. Lot had stated his allegiance to follow after Yahweh by leaving idolatry behind. And even with these horrible backgrounds of sin and idolatry of the Ammonites and the Moabites, God still honors their connection to his chosen people and those that showed their allegiance to him. God's grace and faithfulness is immense, is it not? Can I get an amen? Amen. Good, that was better than the yuck. And it's not just his mercy and grace that applies to all people, it's his justice and his judgment too. Let's take a look at our next section, Deuteronomy 26. 2.26, sorry. Verse 26, this is a little bit of a shorter section. So I sent messengers from the wilderness of Kedema, to Sihon, the king of Heshbon, with words of peace. Right. Notice that he's trying to make peace. He's not just going in, rip-roaring, and conquering people. He goes in and he says, Peace. Let me pass through your land. I will go only by the road. I will turn aside neither to the right hand nor the left. You shall sell me food for money that I may eat, and give me water for money that I may drink. Only let me pass through on foot, as the sons of Esau who live in Seir and the Moabites who live in Ar did for me, until I go over the Jordan into the land that the Lord your God, our God, is giving to us. Same thing. He's trying to be kind. He's trying to be gracious. But Sihon, the king of Heshbon, would not let us pass by him. "'For the Lord your God hardened his spirit "'and made his heart obstinate "'that he might give him into your hand as he is this day. "'And the Lord said to me, "'Behold, I have begun to give Sihon and his land over to you. "'Begin to take possession that you may occupy his land.' "'Then Sihon came out against us, "'he and all his people, to battle at Jahaz. "'And the Lord our God gave him over to us, "'and we defeated him and his sons and all his people. and "'We captured all his cities at that time "'and devoted to destruction every city, "'men, women, and children. "'We left no survivors.' Only the livestock we took as spoil for ourselves with the plunder of the cities that we captured. From Auror, which is on the edge of the valley of the Arnon, and from the city that is in the valley as far as Gilead, there was not a city too high for us. The Lord our God gave all into our hands, only to the land of the sons of Ammon um, you did not draw near, that is, to all the banks of the river Jabbok and the cities of the hill country, whatever the Lord our God had forbidden us. We read this, and what we see next is this. God is the God of the entire world. He's impartial towards people. And not only is he impartial in his grace, but secondly, you can write this down, God's justice is also impartial. His justice applies equally and impartially to all people. When we read passages like this, I found that it's our tendency to view it through our own understanding of morality. And in one capacity, we would be right to do so. When greeted with the prospect of genocide, we should rightly have a visceral response of offense. But in so doing, we see God as a genocidal tyrant and evil despot. That's what the world sees him as. But that would only work, guys, if we have this false formula. Here's the false formula most of us are operating off of without even knowing it man is innately good. If God is good, he will not punish. God punishes good Amorite people. Therefore, God must be evil. That's the only way we can look at this section in chapter 3 as well and say, well, God's not being a good God, as if this were true. This kind of mischaracterization is like the quote from the noted atheist Richard Dawkins. He said this, The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all of fiction. Jealous and proud of it. He's petty, unjust, unforgiving. He's a control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. Somebody use their thesaurus. <laughs> but, guys, the truth is, is that God is good that he's merciful and just. The God of the Bible cannot lie, and he defines himself not with this guy's description, Richard Dawkins, but with the description from Exodus 34 that we've gone over many times. And the reason I do this is because so many of you need to grasp that this is your God, even if your feelings or your thoughts or your perspective or your context tells you differently. So the reality must be that he is good and we as people are rebellious and hard-hearted. And so God is just for punishing us if we do not turn to him. When we get that false formula in our head, we've lost the gospel. Because you see, all of us deserve conquering and death. The wages of sin is death. But God is so gracious that he reaches out to people saying, do you want my love? Do you want my gospel? Even though the Jews were people chosen by them, he is not even partial to them in the same sense. Yes, he's more faithful in covenant because he's drawn them, but at the same time, he punished them just like he did everybody else. The formula of our sin and God's goodness works with them just as much as it does anyone else. And so let me give you what you need apologetically to defend the Bible when you get into this kind of a conversation. Maybe you've already gotten into that conversation internally. If you haven't internally or externally, you will. You will have this conversation because this is a big topic right now. I must have had probably a dozen conversations in the midst of my seminary classes with other pastors about how hard this section is for them. So first, I want you to write this down. Here's the apologetic for the conquering of Canaan. You might even write down the apologetic for the seeming genocide. The first thing we must understand is the nature of the text in our hands. It is not a divine police report. It is ancient Near East literature. And that kind of literature uses hyperbole, or what I like to call tribal smack talk, to speak of victory and defeat in war. It's kind of like saying this, um, hey, Ken, did you watch the game the other day? Yeah, Notre Dame killed the Ducks. Sorry. Yeah, I know. Well, did they actually kill them? They went out and committed homicide? No, they didn't. They beat them badly. It's an idiom. So when it says we devoted them to destruction, we could, killed everyone, there were no survivors, you have to take it with a grain of salt. That doesn't mean the Word of God is, being, um, is lying or, or being errant, But guys, we know from the Bible that this didn't actually happen where they killed every single person and there were no survivors. Look at 2 Samuel 21.2. This is far later in history. And so the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now, the Gibeonites were not of the people of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. Although the people of Israel had sworn to spare them, Saul had sought to strike them down in his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. Oh, there's an incongruence in Scripture. No, not at all. It's ancient Near East literature. Read it as such. I would expect them to say, we left no
1: survivors
2: in your face, right? That's ancient tribal smack talk. But we also have to read the rest of Scripture to help understand, okay, so they didn't totally commit genocide as we would define it. And so the first thing is, is Israel didn't totally wipe them out. Israel went in and they probably did what they needed to do to follow the command of God. Well, secondly, not only do we need to understand the literature, we need to understand that the people that they were going in to conquer were idolaters. The Amorites were a people that refused to follow the God of Abraham. Now, how do you know that? Hans, did they even know the God of Abraham? Well, yes, they did. Because remember, Abraham had been sent there 400 years earlier to build an altar to Yahweh and to prophetically speak the truth of Yahweh. They had been taught Yahweh, and yet they still refused him. And so we see in Scripture, in 1 Kings twenty-one twenty-six that the people of Israel had started to go after the Amorites in the way that they acted. And this is what it says. The king acted very abominably in going after idols as the Amorites had done, whom the Lord God cast out before the people of Israel. And again, what I've noticed over the years is that the response of many is, eh, idolatry is not really that good, but does it deserve destruction? I mean, d- does God really, does he need to go in and totally just trounce these people because they're idolaters? But dear brothers and sisters, how we respond to that question of idolatry says something about how we respond to idolatry in our own life. Is it horrific to us? Well, it should be. Idolatry should be horrific to us because there's only one solution to idolatry. It was for God the Father to send His only Son Into a world that, in a sense, would commit genocide against the royal line of God's family. What idolatry of any kind requires is the death of Jesus Christ on the cross to pay for the faithlessness and the disloyalty of mankind. And that disloyalty and faithlessness has been displayed to a faithful and loving God. In and of itself, idolatry in my life and yours should bring us to our knees in revulsion and repentance. There are not levels of idolatry. All idolatry deserves destruction. Replacing God in any sense in our lives deserves destruction. And we have to understand that. If we understand that, then this section of Scripture makes sense. And next, I think it will add to it because... It's been said before that how you worship displays the kind of God you serve. And what the people in chapters 2 and 3 are doing, Sihon and Og and their people, they were murdering children in the midst of their worship. The God that Sihon and his people worshipped was named Kimosh. And the evil that this God required, according to the Amorites, was human sacrifice, especially of small infants and even babies. For them to try and gain the blessing of their God, they would literally go and kill innocent children on the altar. This was the God that they served. Now you might say, Hans, that's, that's just as bad as the Israelites. They killed animals. But guys, there's a huge difference between humans and And animals. Animal sacrifice is grotesque enough, and it served enough of a purpose to show your sin is grotesque. Don't do it anymore. But human destruction is a whole new level it's killing the image of God. And so, this idea is what Psalm 106 speaks of that what was occurring because Israel eventually took on this same practice. It says they did not destroy the peoples as the Lord commanded them, but they mixed with the nations and learned to do as they did. They served their idols, which became a snare to them. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons, because behind every idol is a demonic entity. They poured out innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan, and the land was polluted with blood. Now, guys, I don't think any of us would balk at the necessity to go to war against the Nazis in part, to stop the killing of innocent Jews. There's no American that would balk at that. If they do, then there's something wrong in their head. Likewise, we shouldn't balk at God's command to go in and stop the killing of innocent children. The God that protects the fatherless would not endure this murder. He would not endure it long. And that's part of the reason they went in to conquer these specific groups while leaving other groups alone. Fourth, When we don't understand how quickly idolatry will lead our hearts away, as it did right in Psalm 106 there, we let it linger and it may not affect us, but it will affect our children and those after us. Guys, you have to be purposeful in your zeal for Jesus to even hope that your kids will be slightly as purposeful in their zeal for Jesus. It doesn't happen just because. In the same way, if we don't deal with idolatry in our life, you can guarantee it will pass down to our children. By the time the kings of Israel came around, the uh, the Amorites were already pulling Israel into their practice as we just saw. But it happened even earlier than that. It happened even earlier than the kings of Israel. One of the most confusing and grotesque stories in the whole Bible actually illustrates this point really well. The story of the judge named Jephthah. Look with me at Judges 11. Go in there in your Bible with me to Judges 11. Just a little bit to the right. Jephthah was an outcast because he was conceived illegitimately between a a man and a prostitute, and he was cast out of his tribe. But then the Ammonites came to defeat his people, and the people came to him and said, hey, can you please lead us? So he responds, and he leads them, and he... Speaks out to the king of Ammon, and here's what it says in Judges eleven twelve. Then Jephthah sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites and said, "What do you have against me that you have come to to me to fight against my land?" And the king of the Ammonites answered the messengers of Jephthah, "Because Israel, on coming up from Egypt, took away my land from the Arnon to the Jabbok and to the Jordan. Now therefore, restore it peaceably." Jephthah again sent messengers. To the king of the Ammonites and said to them, Thus says Jephthah, Israel did not take away the land of Moab or the land of the Ammonites. But when they came up from Egypt, Israel went through the wilderness to the Red Sea and came to Kadesh. He's about to tell them the story of the very same thing we're covering in Deuteronomy 2. See how it's really great to study one part of the Bible? Because then you can understand another part of the Bible. So he's about to tell him, Hey, no, you've got the story wrong. Go back and read Deuteronomy 2, dude. Right? He didn't come in and take it from the Ammonites. In fact, he protected you. What are you thinking? Okay? Fast forward to verse 23. So then the Lord, the God of Israel, dispossessed the Amorites before his pe- from before his people Israel. And are you taking possession of them? He says. Will you not possess what Chemosh your God gives you to possess? In other words, is your God not powerful enough to take the land for you like ours did? And all that the Lord our God has dispossessed before us, we will possess. Now, are you any better than Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab? Did he ever contend against Israel, or did he ever go to war with them? In other words, guys, we left alone Moab, we left alone Ammon, and the king of Moab never came and gave a grievance. Verse 26, while Israel lived in Heshbon and its villages, and in Aror and its villages, and in all the cities that are on the banks of the Arnon, 300 years, why did you not deliver them within that time? In other words, if you had a beef, why didn't you come and talk about it sooner, buddy? Kemosh isn't powerful enough, you haven't come to talk about it, you're, you're full of it. And so he goes to war against him. But what's interesting is that it gets really weird at this point because he needs Yahweh or who he thinks is Yahweh on his side. So look at how he tries to get Yahweh on his side. Look at verse 29. Then the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah. This is the Spirit of Yahweh. And he passed through Gilead and Manasseh and passed on to Mizpah of Gilead. And from Mizpah of Gilead, he passed on to the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, if you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. Pause for a second. Any of you ever seen the Heroes of the Bible Judges series from Veggie Tales? Those stories and what we usually teach our kids is, ooh, be like the judges, be like Samson. Be like, no, you don't want to be like Samson. <laughs> and you don't want to put out fleeces. You don't want to do the things they do in Judges. Why? Because the whole point of the book of Judges is that they were spiraling down the toilet bowl of sin. And you might look at this and go, Jephthah, mighty to the Lord, he makes a vow. Yes, but keep reading. It gets bad. So Jephthah crossed over the Ammonites to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand, and he struck them from Aror to the neighborhood of Minith, 20 cities, and as far as Abel-Karamim, with a great blow. So the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. Yay! Then Jephthah came to his home at Mizpah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him. Now what was his vow? The first thing that came out of his house. He's going to sacrifice as a burnt offering. What was the sin I just talked about of the Amorites that they were doing? They were taking their sons and their daughters and doing what with them? Is this the God of Yahweh or the God of the Amorites? This is the God of the Amorites, isn't it? Yahweh? But then his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She was obviously Pentecostal. She was his only child. I'm just kidding, just kidding. You can write me an email later. She was his only child besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low and you have become the cause of great trouble to me. For I have opened my mouth to the Lord and I cannot take back my vow. Now, guys, do you really think Yahweh was up there going, Jephthah, you can't take back your vow, good Christians, when they promise, they do it. (laughs) Of course not. He's the God that slayed the Amorites because they were sacrificing their daughters. But this guy has so whacked in the head about who he thinks Yahweh is, look at what he does. She says to him, verse 37, So she said to her father, let this thing be done for me. Even she was tweaked out. Leave me alone two months that I may go up and down on the mountains and weep my virginity, I and my companions. So he said, go. Then he sent her away for two months and she departed, she and her companions, and wept for her virginity on the mountains. And at the end of the two months, she returned to her father who did with her according to his vow that he had made. She had never known a man, and it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah the Gileadite, four days in the year. Guys, this is crazy. You might think, so wait, what happened? In order to get Yahweh on his side, Jephthah made a hasty vow, and he ended up sacrificing his daughter, thinking that's what Yahweh wanted. If we don't look with discernment at the Bible, all of a sudden it gets really confusing and we look for ways to act, but the reality is, is, if we're not reading it in proper context, historically and grammatically, we're going to get some really whacked out things about who Yahweh is. Was Yahweh sitting there wanting him to sacrifice his daughter? No. H.E. double hockey sticks? No. No. <laughs> he wasn't. They had convinced themselves because they'd moved so far from Yahweh, because lingering idolatry had sat in their midst, they had convinced themselves that this was the right thing to do. Lingering idolatry leads to false views of God and worship. And so God was going in to conquer these people and get that out. Well, lastly, you can write this down. We need to understand that God was overwhelmingly patient. As part of the apologetic for the for the idea of conquering Canaan we have to Canaan we have to realize that God was long suffering. As I said earlier 400 years earlier he had sent Abraham in to tell them of Yahweh. He even promised in Genesis 15:13 that you're going to go to Egypt for 400 years. Why? Cuz those 400 years were given as time for them to repent, for the Amorites to repent. And after that 400 years, because there wasn't repentance, God went in to conquer. Guys, when we understand that this level of destruction is what we all deserve because we are rebellious, just like the Amorites, along with the fact that God was overwhelmingly gracious and patient with the evil of the Amorite people, there is no way we can find contempt in God. These hard and difficult passages are still hard to read, yes. But they are now hard because we see in the Amorites our own rebellion against a loving and patient and faithful and just God. You see, who is the God that we serve? He is the God that wants none to perish. He is not a bloodthirsty God in any form or fashion. Remember Deuteronomy ten seventeen: for the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. This is the same God of Romans 2, 11 in the New Testament. For God shows no partiality. He has given the gospel to everyone. And likewise, everyone who dismisses the gospel will get his impartial justice. This is the God that says in the Old Testament, in Ezekiel 18, 32, For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn and live. And this is the same God in the New Testament in 2 Peter 3, 9 that says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. The God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. There is no difference. And if we fall out of that, we become Gnostics who think that we serve two different gods, one who's angry and one who's not. God has always been gracious. It's mankind that has been faithless. And God is impartially calling all mankind to repentance from idolatry. And those that will turn and live will find his immediate grace and mercy. This should do two things for us. First, it should compel us massively to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. I've had a number of conversations the last month with people. Guys, the last two years has been to get our household in order. It wasn't to stop the evangelical nature of this church and become us for and no more. The reason for membership, the reason for taking a a break for a second and saying, wait a minute, what's going on here, is we need something to call people into, and we need to recognize that we are that household, and we need to get our stuff together. But that does not mean that we are not to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, to our neighbors, to our coworkers, to fellow students. We need to reinvigorate that part of who this church is and start to go back out, start to invite people into church, start to talk to people about the gospel more so than we have been. That's the first thing that it should do. The second thing that this understanding that all mankind is called to repentance from idolatry is it should stop us and make us ask as brothers and sisters, what must I turn from today? Is there unrepentant, unconfessed sin in my life from which I must turn and repent. Are any of you in here today not following Christ? He calls you to turn and live. Are any of you in here following Christ, but you're starting to walk in the way of the Amorites and starting to find ways to make sense of your sin? You've got idolatry of self or materialism or success or sexuality or comfort or security or self-protection. If these are your gods, it's time to slay them and to repent and declare Jesus Christ as the only true God. And so this text today calls us to take stock of that. If God didn't spare the Amorites, he will not spare you. He is impartial to you just as he was impartial to them. But he likewise calls for repentance from you and I just as he did from them. And so my prayer for us, my exhortation for you today is please don't wait any longer. If you're not a believer, turn to Jesus Christ today. He loved you enough to die on the cross for your sin, to forgive you, to cleanse you from all unrighteousness, and to join you into relationship with the Father. If you are a follower of Jesus, then don't start to let your heart wander because this is the last point, and then I'll be finished. God calls all people to repentance. So do not harden your heart. The God we serve is God over all the earth, and he has called all people to repent and turn to him. He has been impartial in both his mercy and his judgment. And this is the God we serve. He has overwhelmed us with the grace of the cross of Calvary, and he is also coming to judge the living and the dead, both those who have repented and those who have not. My question for you is, which side will you find yourself on when that day comes? You might say, well, I'm not so sure. I I still have some time. The idea of giving my life fully over to Christ as Lord and King, it doesn't sound that great. I'm saved, Hans. I'm good. I'm going to get into heaven when I die. But guys, here's the truth. When that King comes and he says, have you repented? Have you turned to me and given your allegiance to me? Which side will you find yourself on? The last part of our text before us today tells us that it's not a great idea. There in Deuteronomy 30, it says, But Sihon, the king of Heshbon, would not let us pass by him, for the Lord your God hardened his spirit and made his heart obstinate that he might give him into your hand as he is this day. You might say, Hans, this looks like King Sihon had no choice in the matter. God hardened his heart. But as we've already seen this morning, we need to take into account the full message of Scripture, not just one verse. And the full message of Scripture is that, yes, God hardens heart, hearts, but also that we harden our own. That's why Psalm 95 and multiple times in Hebrews it calls us to not harden our hearts. Psalm ninety five says this for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as at Meribah, as on the day at Masa in the wilderness. Do not harden your hearts. The word of God speaks to us as the voice of God. It says, Do not harden your hearts. And this is why, if you go back and look at the story of the Exodus, you will see multiple mentions of Pharaoh's heart hardening. Sometimes it says God hardens his heart, and at some points it says he does. What this leads us to is that God will assist us in the trajectory we desire to follow. If towards him the Spirit is clear that he will be faithful to complete in us what he has begun, that no one can take you out of the hand of the Father. But guys, if it starts to drift away from him, the Bible is clear that God will eventually give us over to whatever we desire over and above Jesus. This morning, let's search ourselves and make sure that we are not like Sihon. But let's see if we are repentant to the point that we are allowing the Holy Spirit to convict our hearts of sin and righteousness. And so as we finish and we go to the table of communion, I want to give you three small applications that are giant when we actually try and practice them. First, as we go to the table of communion, I want to ask us to humble ourselves, to ask the question, where have I hardened my heart against God's call of conviction this week? Where have I hardened my heart against God's call of conviction? And how can I repent? I know I have things to take to the table of communion. Things that I have gotten hardened on this week in my heart. And I need to take them to the table and let the Lord have them. Secondly, I want us to take time to look at our innate formula within our own minds and see if we have the right view of God. When I put that false formula on the screen that man is basically good, that if God punishes, he's bad, therefore he must be bad. Does that sit with you? Does that resonate with you? That might be something in my head and heart. That's why I don't trust God. Is it that fake view or is it the truth that man deserves death, the wages of sin is death, and there is none righteous, but that God is so gracious that he came and paid the price for our sin? That's the formula. We need to check our view of God. And lastly, thirdly, I want you to begin praying this week for God to give you wisdom on who you need to bring the message of the gospel to. Who is at a point in their walk in your life that you need to invite them to church so they can start growing? Who do you need to start a relationship with to even show them who the character of Christ is so that you can eventually draw them to the people of God? Who do you need to have that gospel conversation with? They're ready to hear the truth that Jesus died for their sins and resurrected and sits as their king and they need to accept him. Pray for that. And start to reach the world with his truth. Likewise, how many of you are called to reach the world with his truth through Burkina Faso? How many of you are called to give financially to put roofs on buildings? All these things need to be what we as a church do in order to serve Jesus Christ. We need to take seriously the fact that God is the God of all the earth and he calls all of us to make disciples of all nations.